0: My name is Christopher. I'm one of the pastors here at River West Church. This last week, if you filled out one of those prayer cards, I just want to let you guys know our elder team went away. Those prayers were, were lifted up, every single one of them. This last week, we are a praying church, and I want you to know you are loved and you have been prayed for. The Lord is with you. We sure love you guys. I just want, even before getting into the text this morning, I just want to give you guys an update and just a praise. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, it was an African New Life Child Sponsorship Sunday. And because of your generosity today, 480 children in Bujicera, Rwanda, are sponsored. That's amazing. River West, you will never know together what the collective generosity from this community is doing to advance the gospel and impact lives for the better for Jesus' name. You'll never know. Thank you so much for your generous hearts and for saying yes to Jesus and his mission in the world. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Luke's Gospel. If you're just flying in and you're joining us this morning, you picked a great Sunday. We have been in Luke's Gospel investigating and and slowing down and looking at the life and the teaching, the miracles, the signs and wonders that Jesus, through his words, his actions, performed during his life. And today, we're going to look at a story where Jesus is invited over for dinner— by a prominent Jewish leader, a Pharisee. Now, with Thanksgiving around the corner, imagine for a moment what it would be like if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came over to your house for Thanksgiving. Just sit with that idea, if you would, for a moment. Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, is coming to your house with your family, friends and in-laws, for dinner. How does that make you feel? Elated? Are you excited? Are you perhaps a bit nervous and anxious? Perhaps afraid? Or all of the above? What would you do before Jesus arrived? I know what I would do. I would bribe my children with their Halloween candy to clean their room and be on their best behavior when Jesus showed up. But I think an honest admission, this is church, right? Most of us would go through, we would clean our house thoroughly, and we would stage it intentionally to impress Jesus. Don't pretend you're more spiritual than you really are, okay? I think most of us would be tempted to bust out the biggest study Bible in our collection, dust it off, put it right on the coffee table. You know what I mean? It's just well-worn. Leviticus, I've been spending some time there. Perhaps you would go through and in the deep clean, you would make some decisions to throw away some things that you don't want Jesus to see. You'd take out the trash on some things. Before he arrived, perhaps you'd queue up a a Christ-exalting Spotify worship list. You know, like this is just happening all the time in, in here. This is a house of prayer. I think that type of staging, it would likely happen for most of us, but just imagine now After everything is set and the turkey is cooked, the mashed potato and stuffing is laid out there on the table, finally there is a knock at the door. It's Jesus, and he's finally there. What would you say to Jesus after the pleasantries are exchanged? What would you say? Or perhaps an even better more probing question. What would Jesus have to say to you in your house at Thanksgiving? This is the setting for the text that we are going to camp on today as a community. Jesus, the Son of God, is coming over for dinner, and is, as is normally the case when Jesus shows up, things are going to get interesting. Some might say, perhaps even a bit awkward, as the dinner conversation ensues. Welcome to River West Church. Dinner with Jesus. Luke chapter 11. We're going to jump into this dinner at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> and Jesus said, Woe to you also! For you load people with burdens that are hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets with whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is God's word. Now, if you've been around River West for any time at all, you know by now that if a passage contains just a series of woes, it's going to be assigned to me. These are the passages that I get. You can actually go back online and, dis- and see that clearly Adam and Guy go, let's give the woe passage to Christopher. <laughs> this is my jam, apparently. <laughs> but the tension in this passage, imagine what it felt like over dinner if you're a disciple and Jesus begins to just call down these woes. The tensions over dinner. That's no surprise if you were here last week, you know, that as Jesus' public ministry was expanding and the size of the crowds grew greater and greater, the intensity among the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in Jesus' day, that were responsible for shepherding Israel and teaching them God's word, the conflict rose and began to spike as Jesus' public ministry expanded as well which honestly is not much of a surprise at all, as we see the way that Jesus called down these woes and resolutely rebuked the religious leaders over dinner in the passage that we read. Now, for many, I imagine, there are unfamiliar with words like woe. Our defenses might go up a bit when we hear a woe word or a woe passage Because perhaps this terminology conjures up for you images of an angry street preacher or Christians picketing with signs that read, woe to this or woe to that. But what's interesting, when the Bible uses the word woe, the word woe does not mean curse you. In fact, did you know that? that a woe is not simply an angry rant, and it's definitely not a curse. It's actually a loving warning. Biblically speaking, that's what woes represent, are loving warnings. It's the conversation with somebody that you love so much that you're provoked to look them in the eye. In a moment of honesty, that is bound to bring conflict as well, and to say, I can't believe that you're doing this. Don't you realize what you've done and where this decision is going to take you? I love you too much to let you keep going down this path without warning you of what I see ahead, if you continue That's the kind of woes we see Jesus directing to the religious leaders and us by association in this passage. Each woe is a loving warning that's intended to cure religious hearts, not just condemn religious hypocrisy. Each loving woe is is actually a cure So this morning, if you're taking notes, what I'd love to do with the remainder of our time together this morning is show you how four of these loving warnings over dinner lead to gospel remedies. Loving warnings and gospel remedies. So loving warning number one, if you're with me this morning, is this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for those taking notes so you can write this down. It's so a warning about religion, and Jesus is trying to show us that religion elevates external appearances and rituals over the inward condition of our hearts. Now, if you were paying attention in the passage we read, the conflict that ensued between Jesus and the religious leader, leaders all began because Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. It's right there in verse 38 if you look back. It says the Pharisee who invited Jesus over for dinner was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, as somebody who is a bit of a hypochondriac, I am a big fan of hygiene and hand washing. In fact, before my kids come to dinner, they hear me exhort them to go and wash their hands because I know where their hands have been in gross places filled with germs. And so I tell them, go wash up before dinner. I imagine many of you that have been parents or are parents know those exhortations. However, as we're going to see in this passage, the story actually is not about hygiene, or hand-washing, whose hands are clean around the dinner table. Instead, as we'll see in a moment, it's actually a story about holiness and whose hearts are clean. You see, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were a conservative sect of religious leaders, about 6,000, most commentators um, Just roughly say there was about about 6,000 of these Pharisees, this conservative sect of Jewish leaders that were rigorously devoted to personal holiness. As a result, in addition to observing the 613 express commands in the Torah, the Old Testament, the Pharisees also invented and added... Many ceremonial rules and rituals that needed to be observed and kept in order to be deemed holy and clean. So, in order, in the Jewish mindset, there's really two categories: there's clean and unclean, and only a clean person can actually enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with God in his presence. And so when it came to hand washing what you need to know is that in the Old Testament in the Torah God did not expressly tell his people Israel that they must wash their hands before dinner. Now there was these commands for the Levitical priests those of the tribe of Levi that actually had a specific role in the temple before performing sacrifices they needed to go through This ritual and this process of dipping their hands in pots symbolizing that in order to stand in God's presence, they needed to recognize that only clean people can do that. So doing that on behalf of the people. But there was just no command in the Old Testament that said you cannot eat a burger unless you clean your hands. It's just not in the Bible So if you were to go back and actually read some of these hand-washing rules, which you can actually, you could get a copy of the Talmud if you're so inclined, and look up many of these ceremonial rules and rituals, which were commentaries on how Old Testament passages would be applied, you'd see that the Jews added, the Pharisees in particular, added many of these ceremonial rules and rituals that applied to hand-washing. You see, the Pharisees actually believed that a failure to wash your hands before a meal was a significant transgression that would make a person unclean, unholy. One rabbi, I love this, even went as far as saying that eating bread without washing hands was worse than having sex with a prostitute. Isn't that crazy in our mind to to think that not washing your hands before dinner would be categorically in the same place as violating somebody sexually, but they actually were so obsessed with their own outward piety that they, they elevated these outward ceremonial rules and rituals. So this helps us understand why Luke tells us in verse 38 that the Pharisee who invited Jesus over for a dinner was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. He was astonished. He looked at Christ with the same sort of judgment that he would look at somebody who had sex with a prostitute. He's astonished. But as we'll see, Jesus didn't merely forget to wash his hands before sitting down at the table. He intentionally laid their ceremonial rules aside and sparked this conflict to shift the dinner's conversation away from external things like whose hands are clean to the internal reality of their own hearts, whose hearts are clean around the dinner table that day. So, look at this shift Jesus intentionally makes by now washing his hands in verses 39 and 40. What Christ has to say. It says, The Lord said to them, Now, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? It's almost as if Jesus was saying, you Pharisees and lawyers, you care more about outward appearances and these hand-washing rituals than you do about your own heart that God created. You created these rules and rituals and are obsessed with the external while your own hearts are like a cup filled with grimy, crusty things within Now, when my wife, Julie, and I, we moved into um, our first home, we became the proud recipients of the worst dishwasher in the world. How many of you, just by a show of hands, you have owned a really bad dishwasher before? Like just a bad dishwasher. Okay, this was the worst dishwasher, I believe, that has ever existed. No matter what cycle you put dishes on, the dishwasher would only essentially do one cycle. It would clean the outside of things, and then it would take whatever's on the inside, and it would just harden it. Like, so all of these, like, crusty things would get stuck on the inside. My wife and I, we were so frustrated that we just stopped using the dishwasher altogether because it seemed to make things worse when we would put things in, the outside would be sparkly and clean, but inside just grimy, crusty things would be stuck in there. And this is what Jesus is trying to help us realize about religion. Essentially, what he's doing is he's saying, religion is, it's really like a crummy dishwasher. It may clean you up, on the outside, but it leaves the same old grimy, crusty sins stuck within your hearts. You can polish up the outside of the cup with religion, but inside you're still full of wickedness and greed and selfish desires. By the way, this is why Jesus later on compares the Pharisees. Still the same idea of trying to impress upon the inward condition is more important than outward appearances. This is why Jesus calls the Pharisees unmarked graves. Later on, in the passage that we read, he says this. He says, he says, look, woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, the parallel of this woe in Matthew's recording, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs you know you're you're ornate and and you look manicured and put together but inside the truth is you're just full of bones and decaying flesh nothing but death and things that are really 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 unclean and you're not only unclean but Jesus says people walk over your life without knowing it, and they become unclean. If you were a Jew and you walked over a grave, you became unclean in the process. And so Jesus is saying, you're not only unclean, you're making people unclean through your teaching and your life without others even knowing it. Man, no wonder things got awkward around the dinner table. As Jesus is exposing, they've elevated these external appearances over their own hearts. But folks, here is good news today. The gospel is a remedy for this religious inclination to elevate how we appear, rituals we control over the inward condition of our heart. The truth of the gospel is like a high-pressure power washer. It, it not only like cleans the outside, it scrubs away the layers of things that we cannot set ourselves free from, and it makes us wholly clean from the inside out. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen for how the grace of Jesus makes not only how we appear clean, but at at the deepest level, our hearts and what we care about, he cleanses our desires. He cleans what we love most. This is why Jesus, by the way, in verse 41, he says, and this is such a word of promise, but he says, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Again, he's pointing to another ritual that the Jews would do. They would give alms to the poor, but they would announce their charity before others to impress them. And Jesus is saying, if you would just give to the Lord an offering of your own heart, Everything that you do would become clean because you'd finally be a clean cup within and without. So ultimately, this, this first loving warning, it's a word of grace. Which brings us to loving warning number two in this passage that Jesus wants us to pay attention to. And here it is. Religion elevates lesser things over loving God and others. Religion elevates lesser things over love for God and love for others. We see this in verse 42. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, where in the world did the Pharisees get the idea that God wanted them to tithe of their herbs? Well, to answer that, we have to take a short detour back to the book of Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy to the left, or you can look up on the screen and look at this passage here. This is a very probably unfamiliar passage to most, but this is where there's instructions for tithing and giving of our resources to honor the Lord. So in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 14, we read in verse 22, you shall tithe all the field of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So right here, when the Lord Yahweh instructs his people to tithe of their seed, what he's actually referring to is their produce, that their crops would yield. They were supposed to go through and give a tenth of that back to God, but nowhere in this passage did it explicitly spell out and require Israel to tithe of their herbs. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day, they would have a little herb garden that would sit on their windows, and as they're preparing dinner, they would take some of those herbs and mix it in, the way that you and I, with a Thanksgiving meal, we'd pull some sage, we'd pull some thyme, rosemary from, from the garden, we'd pull those things together. The Jews believed that in order to be clean and righteous, you had to even tithe your spice rack to God. So they went the extra mile, not just their produce, but tithing from their spice rack to honor the Lord. But look in Deuteronomy chapter 14, later on in the passage, the Lord reveals the true purpose of that tithe. So look at verses 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns and the Levite, that is the priest, because he has no portion or inheritance with you and the sojourner or refugee, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands would do. You see, the Pharisees had neglected the whole purpose of tithing a tenth of their crops, which according to this passage right here was justice, sharing of our excess so that those without in our community, the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, could actually eat and be filled and there would be equity and enough for all. And yet, instead of caring about justice, the Pharisees instead just gave God a tenth of their spices and ignored the true hearts underneath this command. Friends, in the end, this is what religion always does. It replaces legalism for love. It replaces legalism for love, and legalism is a dead substitute for the kind of love that God is after. Every command in Scripture, Jesus would say in the New Testament, that, that every command the Lord gave, including these commands to tithe, were given to be a doorway to lead us into loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And in fact, Christ would say that when these two commands are obeyed, loving God with our everything and loving our neighbor likewise with all that we have, that that is a true fulfillment of the law, that the love from a heart that overflows in generosity towards God and our neighbors is what the Lord is looking for. He's not interested in our spices. He wants our heart poured out in love to him and to our neighbors. That's why Jesus says you've neglected justice and the love of God and given him instead a substitute that the Lord does not want. But thankfully, the gospel, it liberates us to love God and others with abandon because what it does is it reminds us at every turn that we are the recipients of a love that we could not earn, that God sent his son and he gave his everything Towards us and that truth, it slowly over time begins to change the way that you see your everything, your resources. Instead of having a, a tough grip on them and clenching them, you begin to see that everything you have received is a gracious gift from a father whose love you don't earn, and you become a generous person that cares for justice. And only the gospel. Can truly create that desire within us. Amen? All right, loving warning number three that Jesus wants us to see in this passage as we continue to move through this dinner of woes is religion elevates the approval and praise of others over God's approval and praise. We see this in verse 43. When Jesus said, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You see, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they sought out positions and places of honor and influence in order to make themselves look important, holy, righteous, and successful in the eyes of others. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in the same parallel passage, when calling down this woe, Jesus says something interesting. In verse 5, he says, The Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, thank goodness we don't live in a time where that is a temptation at all. (laughs) To do good things or to broadcast our lives, and our deeds to warrant the approval and affirmation and envy of others. Thank goodness that we don't struggle with that, right? I mean, (laughs) I think there's, there's a laughter because since the advent of social media, you and I can be so easily lured into living for the approval and praise of others. And if we're not careful, over time, everything that we do can actually become an opportunity to broadcast our lives to get the approval and the likes and the affirmation of others instead of a holy God who sees us as we truly are and loves us anyways. By the way, this is why Christ's number one indictment against the religious leader involved the word hypocrite. Hypocrite. So if you you read through the Gospels, I mean, there's more of this Jesus, the woe Jesus coming in Luke's Gospel, by the way. The number one word that he used as an indictment against the heart problem that was wedged in the Pharisees was he called them hypocrites, which actually was a term that was pulled from the Greco-Roman theater, and it literally meant play actor, so when in somebody in the greco Roman theater, when they would take on a role, they would put on a mask and they they would assume the role of whatever person they were playing, and Jesus is essentially saying, "When you do everything to be seen by others or you want the best seats in the synagogues or you want to be greeted in the marketplace as rabbi and teacher, you're play acting you're putting on this." religious show, and that's not what I want. In fact, if Jesus were issuing issuing this loving warning to you and I today, I believe he would say something like this. Woe to the influencers, to the popularity and approval addicts, for you love it when people praise you online and think you have it all together. But I see behind the curtain, and I know the real you. Friends, can I tell you something? It's one of the greatest treasures of the gospel. The Lord sees the real you and the religious alternative of you and prefers the real you. He loves and enjoys suffered and died for real you, not religious you. He sees real Christopher and religious super pastor Christopher, and he actually prefers this guy and wants a relationship with the real us. What freedom there is in knowing that God sees you at your worst and prefers you on your worst days than the play acting that we so often do at church and with him in relationship. Amen. 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 Man, that's medicine for some hearts here today. It is for mine. It is for mine. This week I was considering the life and the testimony of the Apostle Paul who knew this truth that the grace of the gospel sets us free from needing the approval of others better than anyone else. Paul was a former Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. So he was a son of a Pharisee, became a persecutor of Christians, was so adamant about his devotion to the law that he killed Christians. And when he encountered Jesus, Jesus disrupted everything about Paul's life. And I want you to look at something Paul said about his own testimony and something that changed in his life and his relation to others after becoming a Christian. It's in Galatians 1.10. This is so good. I'd never seen this before this week, but there's so much grace in this. Listen to this. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Now underline this. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Which sounds like an admission that Paul got wrapped up in trying to please others. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, the gospel can set you free from people pleasing, from needing approval, from needing through your social media feeds, likes from others, to be seen by others, because you are seen by a God who loves you on your worst days and wants relationships with that real person in need of grace over the religious alternative. Amen? Amen. All right. All of these loving warnings lead to this final woe that Jesus gives to the religious attitude that sets into our hearts. It's the final loving warning. And this is what we need to know. And this is where this whole dinner leads is religion. It loads people down with burdens and rules instead of leading us to a gracious redeemer. Look at verses 45 and 46, back in our home passage, Luke 11, and verses 45 and 46, one of the lawyers answered him. I love this bit, by the way. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, "'Woe to you, lawyers, also, "'for you load people with burdens that are hard to bear.'" And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, this term for lawyers in the passage—it actually it represented the teachers of Israel, and our modern-day equivalent would be something like a seminary professor, um, whose job it was to interpret and apply the scriptures to God's people. And these very leaders that should have taught God's word to unburden God's people, Jesus is bringing down this woe because they've used that very same word, these scriptures, to actually oppress and burden people, to tie down heavy loads that are impossible to lift. It's why in verse 46, Jesus says, "'Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens that are hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens.'" with one of your fingers. Later on in verse 52, Jesus will add to this charge and say, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. It's a very interesting phrase that Jesus uses here as a charge against the religious leaders saying, you've taken away the key the key of knowledge that unlocks the human heart, that unburdens people, that sets them free to come in to God's presence, to be cleansed, to be healed, to be forgiven, to be welcomed and loved and approved. You've taken away the key. And then Jesus, with his preaching around this dinner table, he tells us the key. In verses 47 to 51, the key of knowledge, Jesus preaches it. It's his own death. It's his persecution. It's, It's the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill this man deemed prophet by many. Look at verse 47. Jesus is preaching the gospel over dinner, and he says, "'Woe to you. You build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed.'" So your witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles or sent ones. Some of whom they will kill and persecute. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's foretelling what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. When Jesus arrives, some will welcome and worship him as the long-awaited king of Israel, but most will cry out, crucify him. Especially these religious leaders, that towards the end of the passage, it says, they were lying in wait for an opportune moment. And that moment will come when Jesus will be handed over to Pontius Pilate, where he'll be beaten, stripped naked, hung to a Roman cross, and killed, laid in a tomb. Jesus is preaching that message of his own persecution and saying, that's the remedy. As you did to the prophets of old and your fathers persecuted and killed the prophets, that's what you're going to do to me. And you have the worship team come up here this morning. I know that's a heavy message. Man, if you're just flying in here and you haven't been to church in a while, I hope that you hear with these loving warnings that there is a God that came down, crossed every barrier, so that you could be welcomed, approved, loved, seen, known, cleansed. He's here. He's here. He's in our midst. He wants to clean hearts this morning. You cannot clean that thing out that thing you've been trying to cleanse, scrub it every which way, Jesus just graciously wants you to stop trying. Come to him and humbly admit you need a savior. You just can't fix it. You can't fix that thing. You can't fix your marriage right now. You can't do it. You can't fix that thing you're struggling with. Keeps you up at night. You can't fix it. Come. Come. His arms are open to you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to welcome you this morning. Friends, if you're comfortable this morning, I just believe the Lord is in this time right now. We're just going to ask that every, every head is just bowed and eyes closed. We're in the presence of a God who is both holy and absolutely loving. He wants to do some work in hearts this morning. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit that searches hearts, applies truths, would have our hearts this morning, that we would let down our defenses, we would stop pretending that we're okay. There's some people here that are not okay. Father, we humbly admit we need a Redeemer. We're tired, we're heavy laden, And, Father, we need you to do what we cannot do ourselves. Take these burdens away. Give our souls rest in your acceptance. In Jesus' name, amen. Over this next song, the table is going to be open. If you have made a profession of faith, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, the table is open. To you, we're going to celebrate the acceptance, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Um, you can come to the table. But I believe there may be some here this morning where you came in, you're just heavy. You have not ever prayed and just released all your efforts of trying to earn God's acceptance. This morning, it's freely given to sinners. There's going to be some friends over here. I'm going to be over here. I just want to invite you, come and pray. Don't leave here with that heavy burden strapped on your shoulders. Come, pray, receive grace, receive forgiveness. For those that come, receive the cup, receive the bread. I'll come back up and lead us in a communion prayer this morning, but let's worship the Lord with our hearts this morning. Amen, friends? Amen. Let's worship him.